you'll remain standing, open your Bible to Mark 16. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. I want to speak this morning on the topic of grace from the empty tomb, a comparatively shorter message on purpose uh, for the sake of um, accommodating more services this morning. But uh, this, this text, as always, is just filled with profound truth, and so may God open our ears to receive it. Beginning in verse 1, reading out of the English Standard Version, hear the word of the Lord. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices or bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the, uh, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your true and living word. We open it now, as always, with the expectation that you have something to say to us in it. Lord, you know every person here. You know their hearts, their circumstances, what they bring with them this morning and what awaits them later. And you know exactly how you need to speak truth and life to our hearts. And so we ask that you would, Lord, speak your word, by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory and our good always. Lord, would you move me out of the way and use my voice as yours today for the good of your people, in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, all four Gospels uh, give an account of the resurrection with slightly different details. Um, I, I, I say sometimes it's, it's maybe helpful to think of the Gospels um, as, as four accounts, sort of like if you had uh, four different people writing reports about a car accident. And so if there was a news reporter and a paramedic and a police officer uh, and then an investigative journalist who's maybe writing a little bit of a bio about the driver of one of those vehicles. Th those four people would write different reports about the same accident because they, they're, they're writing for a different purpose slightly and for, and for a different audience. So they could write an entirely accurate report and yet those four reports would have different details. They would share some of the same details as well, but they would have different details because they're serving different purposes and for different audiences. It's helpful to think of the Gospels sort of in that way, four different Gospels written, written from uh, slightly different perspectives because of the audience they're writing for and uh, the purpose. Um, 
And yet they all tell true stories, uh, even in spite of the fact that some of the details uh, are included in some and omitted in others and so forth. But, the, but they all include a story of uh, an account of the resurrection because that's where the gospels lead. The, the whole story leads to the resurrection. Um, in fact, that's really the bottom line of the Christian faith. Without the resurrection, there really is no Christian faith. Everything hinges on that. If it's not true that Jesus was raised from the dead, if that's not true, uh, the Apostle Paul says Christians are of all people the most pitiable. If we have hope in this life only and yet believe the things that we believe and, and give our lives over to the Lord the way that we do, uh, that we're pitiable if there is no resurrection. But if it's true that Jesus was raised from the dead, well, he commands our attention, doesn't he? Because anybody who could say the kind of things he said, did the kind of things he did, predict his own death and resurrection, and then actually be raised from the dead, that person demands an audience. I mean, even if you didn't immediately believe, uh, you, you might just want to listen for more information from somebody like that. And if you think that the resurrection sounds ludicrous, so did most of the people in the first century, or at least a lot of them. In fact, uh, even Jesus' disciples, they might not have considered it ludicrous, but um, they, they considered it sort of unbelievable that he was going to be resurrected on that particular occasion, in spite of all the things he had said. He had told them multiple times he would be killed, um, that he would be raised again, in three days, it said it in Luke 13, Mark, uh, Matthew 16 and 17, Mark chapter eight, that he would be killed, he'd, he'd be raised again on the third day. But even here in Mark 16, these women go to the tomb expecting to find a dead body. That's the reason why they had spices to anoint him. It was largely to cover the smell of a dead and decaying body. They adored Jesus. They believed in him so much so that they had, they had followed him at great sacrifice to their own lives. And yet they didn't believe on that day that they were going to find a risen body or a, a missing body. They expected to find a dead body. In fact, uh, it, it says even, it includes this detail that they remembered along the way that there was a big stone in front of the tomb that they would need help moving. I, I think of this like if uh, a couple was gonna go out to some secluded uh, spot and um, open a nice bottle of wine and watch a beautiful sunset and they realize halfway out there, did you bring a corkscrew? that um, they have bought spices, they are on their way to go anoint Jesus and, then they, and it occurs to them, there's a big stone in front of this tomb, we're gonna need help moving that. And the point is just to underscore the fact they are going expecting to find a tomb exactly like they left it two days before. Sealed up with a dead body inside. They didn't have any expectation that he would be alive, at least on that day. But to their credit, 
at least the women were there because all the men had scattered. Matthew 26, 56 says when Jesus was seized in the garden that all the disciples left him and fled. And interestingly, as a little, little bit of a parenthetical note, those two facts actually strengthen the case that the resurrection actually happened, or at least that the people writing these accounts were telling what they believed to be the truth. And there are more than these two reasons, but, but two of them we get a, a hint of right here. Because the fact that women played prominently into the ministry of Jesus and the development of the church and that women were given the first testimony of his resurrection, that actually would diminish the credibility of their account, not, not improve it. Because the testimony of women in first century Palestine wasn't really given any regard at all. And so, if, in other words, if that wasn't true, if you're, not writing, if you're not writing what you believe to be a true account, don't include that detail, right? Include the ones that help your case, not ones that hurt it. And in, the, in a similar way, the fact that the disciples fled like cowards, like really all of us would have probably done too, but the fact that they fled was a bit of an embarrassing detail. And if you had any influence in what got written down, wouldn't you leave out that detail? If you were on the editorial board as one of those disciples, you'd go, you know, that really doesn't matter. Like, that's not important. Doesn't help the story at all. Let's just leave that out. But they included those details. And again, it just underscores the fact that they're telling, they're reporting what they believe to be a true event in history. Jesus was dead He was sealed up in a tomb and his body was raised bodily. His physical body was raised to life again. But I want to actually take a closer look at uh, the disciples' desertion of Jesus, abandonment of Jesus for another reason this morning. And that is just to draw attention to the gracious response of Jesus. That he, that he sort of sends by way of this angel from an empty tomb. Specifically, uh, I want to observe that Jesus is not disappointed by those who fail him. And that's really the single, the single point uh, that I want to make today. There's no any particular outline to try to follow or whatever. Um, again, sort of in the interest of time, just condensing this a little bit. But Jesus is not disappointed by those who fail him. In verses five and six, it says the women who went uh, into the tomb, they go in and they, they saw an angel there who's described here as simply a man dressed in white. The other gospel accounts um, identify uh, him as an angel. But the angel tells them Jesus is not there. He's risen. Uh, look here and see where his body was laid. You'll notice it's not here any longer. And then look again at what he says in verse seven. But go Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. He's making reference here to something Jesus had said earlier. It was recorded in Mark's gospel also in chapter 14, verses 26 through 28. This is on what we call Monday, Thursday, that night that Jesus was betrayed when they uh, took the last supper together. And it says in verse 26 and following that when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, 
you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go up before you to Galilee. He told them in advance, they will all fall away, but he had a recovery plan. I'm going ahead to Galilee, meet you there. And here's one of the things we need to make note of. That was not a backup plan for Jesus. It wasn't a contingency plan. That was the plan. He did not make them scatter, right? He's not responsible for their sin. Um, He didn't make them weak in that moment. And yet his plan, woven together in a sovereign way, uh, was that that's how events would unfold and that the plan was, I'm going ahead of you to Galilee, I'll meet you there. Even more striking though, than that, uh, to me anyway, and this, and I'm the one preaching, so you'll have to, you'll have to listen, I guess. <laughs> Even more striking than that uh, is, is what he says here in verse seven, go tell the disciples and Peter. Have you noticed this before? Uh, go tell the disciples and Peter. Peter was one of the disciples. So if he just said, go tell the disciples, that includes Peter. Why single Peter out? Well, it would seem because Peter sort of singled himself out. Peter distinguished himself as a next level failure. Okay? I mean, like he he denied Jesus like to, to an exceedingly great degree. He outdid everybody else in his denial of Jesus. And he was crushed by that himself. I mean, when he, when he realized what he had done, he, w- he was crushed by that fact, but it was very overt. It wasn't like it just slipped out that he denied, because he denied him three times. It wasn't just like once, no, I don't know him. Ooh. Now he three times denied Jesus and he wept bitterly over that fact because it was, it was a particularly inglorious failure. And in part because Peter had really set himself up for it because he was so overconfident, so frankly, just full of pride. He thought so much of himself and his own faith and his own zeal. He'd really set himself up for uh, just a colossal failure. You know, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And the more puffed up any of us gets, the harder the fall seems to be. And Peter had, had set him out, himself that way. He was, he was not, not only overconfident, but just a master of putting his foot in his mouth. Right? No matter, I mean, no matter how, how much you know you can say things you ought not to have said, Peter outdid you. And if you know other people like that, you, maybe you've got family members, you're always a little bit afraid when they're in mixed company because you just don't know what's coming out. Okay, Peter outdid that person too. Just a master of putting his foot in his mouth. There are several glaring examples. I'll, I'll share just a few of them. My first from Matthew 16, 
verses 21 through 23. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised again. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter rebuked Jesus. He, Peter rebuked Jesus, pulled him aside as if he is somebody and rebuked Jesus. Come on, Peter, surely, surely you got at least that limit, right? This is right after, I mean, just verses before this was when Peter makes this groundbreaking confession. Jesus says, who do you say I am? Well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And so Peter pulls aside the Christ, the son of the living God and rebukes him. Surely somebody's going, Peter, shh, shh. And then on the night of the last supper, Jesus began to wash his disciples' feet. We read this one uh, on Monday, Thursday. John 13, verses eight and nine uh, says that Peter said to him, when Jesus was washing his disciples' feet, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I don't know exactly uh, how this was said or, or, or ought to be read. It strikes me as an attempt on Peter's part to sort of cover up what he just said. He realized he put his foot in his mouth again. You'll, you'll never wash my feet. Well, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. Oh, oh I meant not, not just my feet. Oh, you thought I meant you can't wash my feet. No, I didn't mean you can't wash my feet. I just mean not only my feet, also my hands and my head. Wash all of me. And of course, Peter was certain that he would never deny Jesus. You know, he said, even if, if everybody else does, not me. He said, Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 33. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, Strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Now, once again, this, th this is just a precious passage right here because Jesus says to him, Satan's demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turn again, Strengthen your brothers. So he knows exactly what's gonna happen, right? And from a certain, uh, a certain way of looking at it, his faith did fail him again in sort of in a colossal way. Uh, but in a more ultimate sense, his faith remained. I mean, he, he sort of got up from that great fall and he followed Jesus once again, right? And, and of course, uh, his contribution 
um, as the church unfolded and um, in, uh, on the day of Pentecost and beyond, I mean, Peter was a pillar of the church, certainly a man of great faith. And Jesus knew he would be, and yet the path from that moment where he's speaking uh, to the growth of the church would be this inglorious moment where Peter denied him. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. It's not unlike what he said to all the disciples. You're all gonna, you're all gonna leave me. And when I rise again, I'll meet you in Galilee. Just part of the plan. Well, I, I am fairly confident today uh, that someone needs to hear that Jesus is not disappointed in those who fail him. Or that more specifically, Jesus is not disappointed in you. Now, if that sounds a little mushy or like something you would read on a Hallmark card or something, uh, I would just point out the fact it's impossible actually for Jesus to be disappointed. Because disappointment means by definition that somebody has expectations that weren't met. Expectations that somebody else didn't live up to. And Jesus never has expectations that go unmet. That makes sense? Even this, where he knew, he knew all the ugliness of what this would entail. He expected it. It was part of the plan, not part of the plan B, not the backup plan of the contingency plan, just part of the plan. And that even in ways that uh, maybe I think mostly aren't revealed in the scriptures, but I think ways we can appreciate from our own experience that surely in Peter's case, there was a great measure of pride stripped from him by that great fall that needed to be stripped from him in order for him to serve in the way God had called him to serve. That he used that in a marvelous way to prepare all of his disciples for what lay ahead. But it's impossible to disappoint him. And there may be some here this morning, Easter often uh, draws some people who um, haven't been in church since last Easter, perhaps or maybe one before that, who have professed Christ at some point, have grown up sort of within the influence of the church and, and maybe uh, considered themselves Christian and have walked away. Maybe some have just sort of strayed or wandered in their faith and some that have just walked away. You've not denied him probably any more vociferously than, than Peter did. Uh, there may be others who, uh, they, they, they've never abandoned Jesus in that sense. And yet, um, that what, what, what tends to be true often of like high achievers is they feel like, They've never done quite enough in all kinds of regards and people uh, will feel like they've let down God somehow. 
I'm not making this up. I've talked to people who feel that way. So this is not conjecture. That they just feel like they haven't done enough, they haven't done well enough, they haven't been good enough, whatever the case may be, that somehow they've disappointed him and let him down. He can't be disappointed. And I don't want to mislead anybody by saying that because that doesn't mean everybody's okay, like everybody in the world is okay and all things are going to work out in the end. That is not the message at all. Uh, God has appointed the day where he will judge the living and the dead. He will judge the world in righteousness. Uh, John 3, uh, you know, 16, which says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 17 says, uh, he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then verse 18 says, he who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe in him is condemned already. So I don't want to blur that very, very important line of distinction. Everybody's not okay uh, in their standing before God. They are okay if they're found in Christ before God through faith in him. But the point here this morning is to say, particularly for those who walk with him or have walked with him in the past, even those who are brought right here to this moment today, maybe to trust in him for the first time, that all of, all of God's plan for you brings you right here to this moment right now. There's nothing unexpected on his part, no matter how much of it might be unexpected on yours or mine. And so the call to you and to me is the same as it was to you at first, the same as it was to his disciples at first. And that is Jesus says simply, follow me. Follow me. That involves repenting, turning away from sin. It involves faith in him, but a simple decision to follow him. And this morning, that, that could mean a response as simple as saying, Lord, I am so sorry. You know, there's no, there, there's no magical, mystical formula for how you begin to follow Jesus. It is just following him. And you know, you can come to a sincere place of Lord, I am so sorry. And he knows everything that that represents. He knows more than you can even put words to of all the ways that you have sinned against him and him only, all the ways that you have failed him, the ways that you've even denied him. He knows all of that. And so simply coming to that place of saying, Lord, I am so sorry, and following him is the response needed from all of us. And frankly, no matter even where we are, even for those who continue uh, to obey him and belong to him and follow him, we continue uh, to, to stumble in our own sin. We never outgrow spiritually our need for the grace of God. Grace is not something we received once upon a time. And then we lived happily ever after. We received grace once upon a time and we continue to receive it because we continue to need it. And we continue to be brought back to places 
uh, of repentance before the Lord, confession and just saying, Lord, I am so sorry. And resolving once again uh, with a renewed commitment to follow him. And so that would really be the exhortation, I suppose, for all of us, wherever, wherever you are in your own place of faith, maybe not, not a place of faith at all. The call from Jesus would be, follow me. Let today be the day where you resolve to do that. That he's brought you not only to this moment in time and this place and this service, but to a point of this conviction that something's happening in your heart that you, you haven't discerned before, haven't experienced before, but you know he's really dealing with you and drawing you to him. The response is just follow him. There may be others, again, who have wandered off, stumbled in whatever kinds of ways, and the call is the same. Um, and so whatever in specific terms that requires of each of us, uh, that's the response urged upon us today once again to say, Lord, I am so sorry. I'll follow you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this indescribably good news from an empty tomb and the gracious, gracious word that went forth from that empty tomb to tell the disciples Jesus is going before them to Galilee and that they would see him there. Thank you, Lord, that when we falter and fail, we know that our fellowship with you is hindered we know that apart from Christ, really, we do live under condemnation. And yet, in no sense do we catch you by surprise or do anything unexpected. But that all together, in ways that we don't understand, you are working out a master plan that leads us step by step to this very moment. God, would you work in individual hearts to respond to you in a fresh new way that there might be life and life abundant imparted to people today because of their choice to follow Jesus. So we yield to you now in his name, amen.